we believe all these homeless people are coming in from other states because we're making either. So they did a study. They found out like over 85, I think 87% of the homeless people are from the community of San Diego. So here's my take. Just to let you know, because you should know. Right, that's true. So Frank. Wow, that's going strong. Tell yeah, us we have, a little bit about well, we John. We have John Franklin, the, the Mara Vista. Uh, we're actually really proud of them in our in our in our studio. We we interview people we're interested in that are also uh, entertaining and interesting. Uh, he has a good history. We're going to talk about his history uh, starting in Washington. Did a lot in Washington. Uh, incredible job for Vista so far. He's been on the city council, and finally he was elected in 2023. Uh, he sat as the the mayor though, uh, 17, 18, 19, 20. He goes way back with the city of Vista. One of the things he's known for, and we'll talk about it, is uh, the the homeless strategic plan that you created right. that has won, uh, it's award-winning, so we'll see what kind of awards. And we're going to have a conversation because I think that San Diego can look at other cities out there that are, are, are making the permit process better, the investments are coming in here, they're making it easier, and that's what we're looking for. We're looking for solutions. He's also uh, a really good advocate for public safety, so we'll talk about public safety. Mark and I, uh, ex-law enforcement, we could talk about that. And just all in all, you know, who is he? And uh, we're going to find out, so stay tuned. All right. We're on. You got me on my camera because last time yep. you did this, uh, that camera's on. You're, so you're good. This one. He, didn't, he, couldn't, he couldn't switch the cameras. He was texting. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to interfere with him when oh, he's texting. Don't, don't mess with millennials. Don't mess with no. them when they're texting. If you take away their cell phone, it's like ruining their lives. But the best part is when they're texting right. when they're driving. You know, and you see that all the time. They but, just did a study where they asked these millennials, they said, what would it take for you to part with your smartphone permanently? Yeah. And the the average answer was $5 million. Yeah. Wow. This was what they wanted to yeah. get. They got phones. off light. Try Play keep away with one of their phones if you want to make them you crazy can't. or hide their phone for a second. Right. But we're all like that. I would much rather lose my wallet today than my phone. All right. You know what I mean? If you had a choice, like there's a lot of good stuff in your wallet you don't want to lose. But that phone... You know what I just did with my wallet? You know, he was like, so here's I can't find my wallet without my phone. Right. I can't get home without my phone. You know, like I just took every card out of my wallet and yeah. I went to the Xerox machine and I put them all on my Xerox machine and I photocopied the front and back. Right. So if I lose my wallet, yeah. I can have that, but I lost the, I lost the Piece Xerox paper? coffee. I don't know where it is now. <laughs> Somewhere buried on my desk. Yeah, it's weird how that wallet keeps getting thicker and thicker, and they oh have these like goodness. really nice wallets you see late at night, like the slick wallet, and they, it can hold five cards. I'm like, five cards? Give me one that holds 20. Well, they right. have those ones that cannot detect the radio frequencies oh, yeah. because there's people that can walk past you. Yeah, we know and, that. And they can yeah, steal your... Right. And they do it. I had mine stolen this month. Oh, you did? No yeah. way. What happened? I, I, uh, somebody made a copy of my card, including the chip, and uh, they went to Morris Cerullo Ministries. Uh, not familiar with him. He's actually local here in San Diego. So uh -huh. uh, my apologies if anybody's a fan of him. But um, they made a $10 contribution in person. Oh, to test it. And um, Yeah, they, they always do that. Right. And American Express said, no, sir, you were there in person. You used your chip. And I said, look, uh, my, my <laughs> church is up at Vista. I'm, you know, I know I didn't give $10 at a church downtown, so... Oh, isn't that weird? But, they, yeah, took, they, they took your chip. Did they too, stop? So no did, fraud did that detection. all they got was ten bucks? Yeah, because as soon as they did that uh, fraudulent transaction, it. I spotted it and I called and. Do you have that? Do you have number. that thing where they'll text you when they make a anybody any payment? I get a text if I get any yeah. payment. Yeah, I, I haven't said anything over two hundred and fifty dollars. You know, text message, email. Oh, I want to know. I got it. I got it low. 
Yeah, the the, like the tech industry a is a new, you know, criminal element that you have to pay attention to because they um, they, ju- they don't steal anymore. They, no more burglars in your house. They just get your phone, right. get your identity, and then buy a house. There's <laughs> yeah. a lot of companies. Like maybe you have some in your in in Vista. They don't take cash. They just will not take cash. No, there's a lot of people that don't take cash anymore. You go in there with cash, and you go, we don't. We don't. We don't accept like, that. What? what is that? Right. But then I realized when I didn't bring my wallet, you have Apple phone, Apple payment. You just click it twice and. And so oh. you don't even need that. I will. I normally whip out a Bitcoin that yeah, I keep Bitcoin, in my pocket. Yeah, right. I go, this is like $500,000 right here. You haven't heard Bitcoin for a long time. No. Are they still, is that still happening? Not since that, oh, yeah. not okay, since that guy on thing. Fantasy Island got busted. Yeah, that guy, the guy he, he did get busted. I watched Bill Maher take it to the, uh, you know, to the, the millennials last night because there's so much a fan of Bitcoin. Right. And he was explaining that all the power and electricity used to operate the servers that are the backbone of the blockchain are really terrible for the environment. And so, you know, oh, as, no as we, you know, it's, it's, we're swallowing a spider to catch a fly. In the it's so place. true. There's always like a counter uh, argument with anything they post. That's you know, right. like there's, there's five things here. Because you have these, I don't want to talk about millennials, but. I do. Okay, so Go you, ahead. you got these kids. That, Bring it up. Well, for the f- <laughs> for the first time, are, the kids are teaching the parents, right? Right. That, that's the first generational change. Like my fourth grade math, I'm like, I, I can't even do it. The, You're the, up to fourth grade. Yeah, I'm up to I, You're yeah, better barely. than Jethro. Right. <laughs> Jethro only made it. To, no, he made it. <laughs> no, he made it. Yeah, he could cipher to sixth grade. Right. Yeah, but if you look at the way they do. <laughs> like math in fourth grade right now, you you will not understand no. it. Like it's how, called, how'd you get that number? Because it's called this common core math. It's it's very confusing the way right. they teach math now. Right. The, the whole world does it the old school way, but there's a common core. Right. They have all these, I don't know how they Circles do Circles and I need lines. to get a tutor to teach my four, fourth grader how to do math. It's like embarrassing. And also with the computers, you know, you always go to the younger generation. Hey, man, how do you do this? Yeah, I just go and their fingers start flying and they think you're going to, I'm not even looking. Just get me there. Four plus four is eight, but how did it feel about it? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but is it really eight? Right. It could be nine. Right. Why? Or did the colonialists decide it was eight? <laughs> so anyway, let's start off with, you know, what I like to do is figure out. Oh, they, are they cracking? Sorry, everybody. It looks like you have like a catheter or something. Ca- yeah, well, he I'm does a, have a catheter. A yeah. Frank, take your pants down and show yeah. him your catheter. I, I, I'm about, I it's no pre-surgery. It's it does. Yeah. Navigated the neck. The, the one thing I don't want to have on today is a catheter. Long, exactly. Yeah. you got a long one. It goes yeah, around your no neck. No kidding. <laughs> That's one catheter I want to deal with. Okay, there you go. Stethoscope looking things. Anyway, those are my old school headphones. For those of you who have wireless, I'm still. I have Jeez. the same ones. Those yeah. are Beats. Those are Beats. I have right. the same ones. Yeah, they're so good. They're reliable. I like those, yeah. The other ones like pop out of my ear and I, right. I lose one, then I run it over. You don't have enough earwax. Yeah, <laughs> that was I, I have to pry mine out. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how they work? Yeah. To find that earwax. Don't wax. use Q tips. Yeah. Just shove them in there <laughs> <laughs> for a legitimate drill, seal. <laughs> exactly, a drill. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about, I guess what I want to do is start off by, um, I'm going to say why the heck do you want to be in politics today's age, but uh, that's kind of... You know what? Uh, <laughs> there is no rational explanation. Yeah, there isn't, right? <laughs> I, I think you got to be a little crazy to want to be a, in public yeah. service today. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't want to talk about presidential politics, but, you know, one of the things that friends always ask me is, why don't we have better candidates, right? Why is the choice be- between this limited field and uh, why aren't there more people that left a job in, uh, you know, the private sector to serve? 
the reality is uh, you're going to do it for free, especially, you know, right. as a mayor. Um, you know, I do get $17.5 an hour to be the mayor. Wow. So, you know. It went up. Yeah, you're successful. I'm, I'm waiting for minimum wage so I can get right. a pay increase. Right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's. It's like cost of living adjustment. But, you know, you couldn't live. In, I have good friends that uh, that just bought in, in Temecula because they couldn't afford Vista. Right. Um, so you certainly couldn't live in Vista <clears throat> right. on the salary of an elected official there. Um, so nobody's doing it to get rich. I, I can tell you that. It is really about an opportunity to serve people. Uh, I, you know, my grandmother, Inez, taught me about serving other people. She never told me this, um, but I learned from her the secret to happiness in life is to serve other people. And, you know, occasionally I'll, I'll share that with people who are not happy for whatever right. reason. You know, I agree. Human yeah. condition from time to time. Volunteer. Absolutely. Yeah, the, yeah, volunteer. You want to be happy, if, serve other people. Right. right. You will always be happy. If you ever do suffer from depression, I've read a lot about that. The number one thing a counselor will tell you to do to get rid of depression is to volunteer. Yeah. And when you volunteer, it usually puts you in a place where you're helping others. And you realize, ooh, my life isn't that bad. And here I am, uh, you know, in my house kind of vegging and being depressed. And then you go, like, to a soup kitchen. You go to a homeless shelter. Uh, you do some work on the road, pick up some trash. And you realize, like, I got a pretty good life. It's kind of adjusting. But, yeah. Well, and, the, and the psychological benefits of volunteering and serving other people you know, I almost describe it as selfish because the reward is so it's self-fulfilling. Great. Right. It really is fulfilling. Yeah, it is and true. You know, and, and then on top of that, I, you know, I, I'm the kind of person that sees something that's wrong and, you know, I don't say they ought to, right. I say what, I ought what, to, because yeah. I've realized long ago, the futility, I, yesterday I was on the way down the highway and I saw a car that had just caught fire and there was a lot of smoke coming out of it. And uh, my wife said, uh, you know, I hope the uh, fire department's going to respond. And, and I thought, you know, I'm going to, and I, I called 911 yeah. and I uh, sent the fire department accurate information about where to go. Because we all suffer from the idea that, well, there's so many somebody cars, else somebody gonna else help. is going right. to do it. Exactly. And it's like, and, and when I called, they didn't say we're already on the way. They didn't know about it. So, right. you know. You're always assuming that help is on the way. That's right. And then there's those who actually will heroes park their car go into a flaming car pull them out they don't even know they're on their way to work they're not right. they're not heroes they're not firefighters and and there's just a certain amount of those percentage of people just go for it like like they say the firefighters most people are running out of a burning building firefighters run into a burning right. building but there's those who go into a burning building with no equipment those right. are rare but i like that's to right. see that and you'll see that on the news like the, the new hero is just something that's almost inherent in you most people don't do it I understand Mark's the same way. You go like, there's a problem, fentanyl crisis, uh, crimes going up, a permit process, all these problems, and you realize, who's fixing this? Well, you know why I like doing it? <clears throat> because if I don't do it, what am I going to do? Kick the can down the road for my kids to do it? That's right. And I look at my daughters, and I go, what kind of a city do I want them to live in? And if I don't do something, as far as education or the city or law enforcement, if I just sit around Complain. then somebody's going to have to do it right and i may not and also i may not like their solution that's right their solution may not be the one that i would choose so uh you mentioned something that reminded me um uh, of probably the most critical event in my life and how i got to where i am right now uh, which is exactly 22 years ago today oh, uh, no. on happy 11. anniversary i think no, 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 today, no, not a go. No, they know what no, today so, is. No, yeah, September 11th, 20, okay. 22 years gotcha. ago today. 9-11. Um, you know, and, and I definitely want to take a minute to remember uh, what today is about. Um, remember those who died 22 years ago and those who have died subsequently uh, and the heroes that rushed into those towers and climbed 110 stories. Um, 
but uh, I'll tell you, I was at an event yesterday, and there was a gentleman who was uh, giving the program, and he was a little, maybe 10 years younger than I am. I'm 44. And I was in, I'll never forget, I was in my environmental uh, sciences laboratory class at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. It was around 8 in the morning, maybe it was 8.30 my time. And so the uh, the events of the day had already been ongoing for a few hours. Right. My mother uh, was calling me in the middle of class, and she kept calling, and I so I knew it was something important, and I answered the phone. I said, Mom, I'm in the middle of class. But the, the gentleman that was giving, he was actually a young firefighter, was giving the program yesterday at this uh, ceremony that I was at. And he said, um, he said, I want you to all close your eyes and think about where you were. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't have to close my eyes. Everybody right. knows where they it's, were. In that uh, right. it, it is right. so indelibly right. burned into my memory. Absolutely. Uh, I went to my car. My car was in the parking garage across the street, and I got a, I had a transistor radio in my glove box, and uh, you know, 22 years ago we still had those things, <laughs> and I brought it into the classroom and I turned it on, and we were trying to get on the computers, and you know, all the big news websites were all crashed. There were so many people trying to get get on them. But I turned the radio on, and the, the professor was very unhappy. I was interrupting class, and I was trying to explain to him, this is more important than what's going on in our class right now. Exactly. We all need to, but, right. but nobody knew what was going on. Right. So, but I was just, you know, at that, at that moment, we didn't, yeah, we didn't know if it was a terrorist right. uh, or it was a horrible accident. Right. But it, obviously, it was something very consequential. I had the opportunity in April of 2001, for the first time in my life, to go to New York City. I went to the top of the Twin Towers. Uh, you know, it was amazing. And I always felt that there was, for some reason, like God wanted me to be there and, you know, and see New York as it was. And so that it would, you know, really affect me. And it did. And uh, talk about depression. I was, I was not depressed as an individual. I was depressed as an American. And uh, that sense of pride that we all had in our nation and the, right. the pulling back together, the flags on every door right. uh, in our neighborhoods right. uh, really pulled me out of that. Um and it gave me a sense of purpose and, and meaning right. in life. And I decided after that that I was going to uh, do what I could to be influential as a citizen. And so I volunteered for the Associated Students of the University of Missouri. How old were you? I, I was, I think Still I was, a kid. Yeah, I, was 20, I was 21 yeah. at that time. Oh. I was out of, I, I was, uh, I was a student that needed a few years after high school <clears throat> right. to, to get like all of us. College. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Those, those need a little years break. I, that's yeah. right. I, Give me a break. I, I needed to work a little bit. I've worked since I was, you know, 12 or 13 and, yeah. and work has always been important to me. And, um, but that really, that really centered me. And so, uh, I represented the associated students at the, uh, state capitol in Jefferson city, Missouri. Ooh. And I had a, a legislator that uh, didn't think I was fully on board with the students' ideas. And so he looked at me and he said... little to the right. He said, you don't really believe any of this, do you? And I said, well, sir, I'm here to represent the students' viewpoint, not my own. And he said, well, why don't you come to work for me instead? And so I did. Who was it? Uh, it was Rob Mayer from the boot heel of Missouri. Oh. Missouri in the southeast corner has this little appendage. It looks like the heel of a boot. Got it. And it w was a very uh, conservative legislator. And, uh, and then I, I really I developed a passion, a love for politics and for leadership. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to go to Washington, D.C. I didn't know anybody in Washington, D.C., not one person. And, you know, I, I had a young person very recently who's here in San Diego and they want to be involved in politics. And I, I tell all young people, I say, you know, Washington, D.C. is 3,000 miles that way. Get on a plane, go. You don't need to worry about, you know, take save your money up, save enough for first and last month, 
print your resumes out and go walk them door to door. Because I literally did not know anyone there. And I decided to go out and introduce myself. I've always been uh, very intrepid. And, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'll go into a strange area. I'll introduce myself. I don't need plans. Uh, you know, it's I'll figure it out. Do it. Yeah, that's the best way to do it. So, it's like learning how to swim, just jumping in the deep end. That's right. And so then I had the opportunity to be an intern in the U.S. Capitol building for Roy Blunt from Missouri. And uh, just, you know, happened uh, by, by, you know, circumstance. I, I finished my education at the American University in Washington, D.C. Right. On our school job board, there was an opportunity to work for a firm. Uh, some of the staff there had worked for Congressman Blunt and Congressman DeLay from Texas. And they were still involved politically in their operation, and they referred me, and I got the opportunity to be an intern. And the, the, best, uh, the best window I ever worked behind, if you look at a picture of the west front of the Capitol, that's the side of the Capitol that faces the Washington Monument. Right. There are two giant arched windows on either side of the Capitol. Mm -hmm. Most of the windows are, are rectangular, but there's two giant arched windows on either side of the center of the building. And uh, one of those giant arched windows was mine. <clears throat> it was a small stairwell. And it was a place that was only fit for an intern behind that window. Right. Wow. So I had this little tiny desk that was pushed right up against that window. But you wow. got to look out the window. Oh, I had the most beautiful view. That's cool. Yeah. Of course, you know, I had the same view as the speaker and, and all the other uh, senior leaders in Congress. Yeah. Uh, but a, but an area that was only fit for an intern. But uh, that to this day, that was uh, you best know, office a source space of, ever. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I, I, would, I would trade it for what I've got today in a minute. Right. right. So that was actually the stairwell of the talking about the history of the Capitol. That was the stairwell to the old house chamber, which today we call Statuary Hall, which is just outside the main uh, new house chamber that was built um, during the Civil War. Nice. I took a tour of that last year. And uh, for anyone who hasn't been there, it was the first time I've been there. And I was born and raised in America. And I was, for the first time, I was. it all made sense when you, when you walk at all these history classes that you're born in the U.S. Constitution. But the feeling that you have when you walk into the Capitol, it's something that you can't explain. It's, it's almost right. a feeling of pride and you, you never had that. You know, we're, we're Southern California boys. We grew up on the beach and uh, kind of away from Washington. You know, I let the politicians do their thing. But when you're actually there, whether you're in politics or not, man, it really hits you and you, and you, and you, hear, and you see the history. We got a really good tour from uh, Juan Vargas. Shout out to Juan, thank you. And, uh, and a historian. And it was unbelievable everything that's ever happened in that capital. Like there is a huge history. Yes. But going back uh, to that 9-11, uh, I remember when uh, that's, I was in law enforcement and rescue and fire department, and I just retired. And so I got calls that morning, and, and my guys who I worked with just go, turn on your phone and be on standby. Yeah. That's what I heard. I'm like, what? And that's when I turned on the phone, and, I'm like, and I was talking to them like, okay, there's a, there's a building on fire. Holy crap! What was that? Second tower just got, what, what, is, that, is this live? Is this live right now? What was that? And it was a big explosion, okay? Yeah. So then it all came to me. Okay, now I know why they call me. Now I know why I'm on standby. Even though I retired, they got word that we are being attacked. Yeah. And we don't know what the extent is. So we don't care if you're retired. You may have to come back and do something, either take the 911 dispatch right. or you know, do instant commander and all that stuff. But I remember when I saw that and how it affected me, and I, I do believe that even though we have a uh, everyone's pushed on extreme right, ex extreme left, uh, left, when something like that happens, everyone comes together. That's right. It's almost like when you're squabbling with your family and you don't get along and then somebody breaks in the window. Mm -hmm. 
forget about us. Somebody's you know, the, breaking. Right. All the, of a sudden, you get the image. The images that really affected me were were not the plane crashes, but the people jumping. <clears throat> yeah. Oh God, that was because so they bad. didn't want to die in a fire. Yeah. And holding hands yeah. and going. There's no way out. I'm out. And I was and I was just looking at it going. I couldn't believe people. Were but jumping. then I got pissed. Yeah, me too. I got really pissed. Yeah. Almost to the I was a vice principal at the time. I'm looking at these kids not knowing that these junior high kids were going to be the future fighters in Afghanistan right. and in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And they did join. They did join. A lot yeah, of them yeah, did. A lot of them. 18, and they went in. in. Let's go fight. Some high school people went in. Right. Some everybody. They're just like, we're yeah. not going to let this happen. Now, whether or not, you know, taking out. You know, Saddam yeah. Hussein and yeah, all that gonna, whole thing yeah, was after just that was kind after of a that was like, all right, what what's going on I here? You, I think you have the wrong enemy. <laughs> Why'd you start that war? We could talk but anyways, about that all day. Well, let's talk, let's let's hear. It. We know because nine eleven, we're talking right. about it. But let's hear. I'd like to really like focus on how did you get from Washington D.C. to actually pulling the the trigger and running for office. So my uh, work with the House Majority Whip Roy Blunt. Uh, gave me a, an opportunity to meet somebody that had worked for Congressman Darrell Issa. And so 20 years ago, I became the legislative correspondent or the person who answers the mail. So if you wrote the congressman a letter, it was my job to take uh, letters that he had approved. And, you know, if you wrote about immigration, we'd probably have 25 different uh, particular questions on immigration. And so we would find the particular point of view or the particular answer to your question and have a letter ready for that. And if we didn't have the specific answer to your specific question, my job was to draft a new letter, take it to all the congressman's staff, make sure that uh, all that they knew about his policy perspective was represented, and then ultimately the congressman to be approved and make sure that those folks got a timely response. So I, uh, I began serving the people of VISTA in 2003, and I had the opportunity to travel to VISTA in 2003. And believe it or not, where I'm, where I grew up in Kansas, actually looks a lot like Vista. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have any palm trees, and the weather is much better in Vista. Yeah. But uh, I instantly identified that this was a place that I would love to live one day, and it took me six years from there, or seven years from there, uh, until I ultimately achieved the dream of coming back and moving permanently to Vista. I met my <clears> wife in Vista. Uh, built a, a business. That's what there. did it. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. She's saying, "Hey, yeah. I moved um, to Washington." Yeah. No, you got to come to visit. That's right. That's right. It's <laughs> a motivating she, she, factor. Her mother is here. Um, nice. I've been so fortunate. My wife is a wonderful family. Uh, my wife doesn't like how close I am with her mother. You know, you're not supposed to yeah. belong with yeah. your mother-in-law. She likes you better than her yeah. daughter. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to go that far. Yeah. I don't want to yeah. get in trouble. Right. But, yeah. but, uh, but I have a great relationship with my, uh, with my, um, you know, my, my wife's family. And yeah. I feel really fortunate and blessed to have found a family here. And, uh, you know, life's been great. Um, I live in the the best city in America, probably in the world. We have, you know, we've been recognized multiple times as having the best weather. Mm -hmm. We're perfectly located. On the beach, you get too much cloud cover. It's a little too chilly. Right. Everything rusts. That's right. Right. Uh, (laughs) If you go inland, you know, we're seven miles inland. Uh, That seven miles gives us seven to eight degrees of warmth. Yeah. Uh, Always sunny. Greater than the beach. It's always sunny. Right. 
if you go inland to Escondido, and I love Escondido. It's hot. Uh, but, it, you know, you're seven degrees warmer because right. you're seven gets, miles further it inland. It gets hot. I think it's like one degree wow, of, that's of pretty temperature. Good. Yeah. Every you mile. just that's raise the property values by yeah. seven or eight percent right now. <laughs> that's right. Vista. Well, just by that definition, that's it. And, no. and I, I didn't do it. Uh, we, we've been called the climactic wonderland right. of the world uh, often, and and it's one of our city mottos. Well, explain to everybody where Vista is actually in California, because sure. some people right. are listening okay, that so aren't even around uh, here. Com- they know where most people know where San Diego is. Mm-hmm. So from San Diego, a coastal community. There's Vista. So it took me about 40 minutes to come down the 15 this morning. I drove through Escondido. We're right between uh, Oceanside and Escondido. We're halfway. Uh, 78 highways, about 15 miles long, uh, it, between Escondido and uh, and Carlsbad or, or Oceanside. And we're we're seven miles inland between the two of them. So we neighbor San Marcos, we neighbor Oceanside, and we neighbor uh, Carlsbad. What's nice. the population in 103,000. Okay, <clears throat> similar to El Cajon. Very similar to El Cajon, uh, same population size as right. San Marcos and Carlsbad. Almost some of the same climate would I would think would be in El Cajon and Vista. Isn't and and it's Ours located just a little better. Yeah, in San Diego, better. San Diego County. It's yeah. in San, which is three point five million people. Right, so we total. Can split up the pie there. Right. Yes. So you got these little cities, hundred thousand here, hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. I think. Well, San Diego's big. One point five million. One point five. I right. think San Diego is. And now. about one point five million homeless. <laughs> I know we're going to talk about that's what that. it feels well, like <laughs> and, and, I, and I, just to tell you why I, I moved to Vista I moved to Vista because it was the size of community that you could still be Manage. involved in right you know uh, in the city of San Diego nothing against the city of San Diego but it's, big. it's such a big city right. that in order to plug in as a citizen and really be a part of the civic life uh, you know it's difficult you're going to be involved in a neighborhood or an industry but I really wanted to be a member of my community. Right. And so to me, Vista was the perfect size place that one could really know uh, the community and, and play a role in it. And right. because public service is part of my, my background, uh, when I moved to Vista a few years after I did, I had the opportunity to run for the water board. And of course, you know, if you if you want to know about politics in California, oh, water you better start with water. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Most people do not understand what, how much power a water board kind of sways and and that resource. Can you explain a little bit what a water board does? Sure. You know, and they're they're all a little different because some water boards manage uh, wastewater in the city of Vista. The city manages wastewater, Uh, but uh, for me, what was great about uh, serving on the Vista Irrigation District was it engendered a love of the history of the city of Vista and the community of Vista. Because we're a, we're a community, we're a village that's 100 years old. The Vista Irrigation District celebrated its 100th anniversary. So um, the founders of the Vista Irrigation District formed a, uh, a uh, water district, an irrigation district, so that they could irrigate their crops. Mm-hmm. They, they uh, passed a bond with uh, 100% of the voters voting, and it passed. I, I just, I just 100%, gave the, 100% turnout. Wow. You don't see that anymore. No. And um, it was like 128 votes for and four votes against. So it was a small number wow. of voters. But uh, they purchased 45,000 acres of land that we still own today. Uh, the Vista Irrigation District is one of the state's largest landholders. Wow. So that Warner Springs Ranch is a watershed. All the water. So the, wa- the water board owns the land? That's right. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's a public resource. <clears throat> and uh, it's a whole other conversation. Do they build on that land? No. 
No, there's they drill. Don't you, no. they get the water? No, nope, uh, we don't get it out of the ground. The the forty five thousand oh, okay. acres is a watershed. So all the water, rainwater that falls on that land, right. all runs into Lake Henshaw. We okay. we built a dam to create Lake Henshaw. Okay, and then we built a hundred mile long flume. I mean, think about the hundred miles. hundred miles. The water comes from Lake Henshaw. It come it comes into uh, Lake Wolford in Escondido. Right. And we have some shared facilities with Escondido, and then we have an underground uh, pipeline that brings the water. It's underground and above ground in different places. What's the, what's the circumference of that pipe? <clears throat> it's it's those, about four foot. It's, four so foot. it's okay. underground. It, 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 or is it most the, places it's above ground. It was actually an okay. open culvert, and then we covered it with concrete cover and called it a flume. Okay. And in some places it's become a pipeline, but primarily it's still above ground. Right. And in now, fact, do you uh, need an easement from from all the other cities? You have to get an easement so you guys can go yes. on. Wow, it's a lot of stuff. Does it go yeah. into any residential properties? Um, well, no, it doesn't. Okay, no. How about through any reservations? It okay. does. It does go through some of the reservations. And, and how and, do you how do you work that out? Well, uh, carefully. You yeah. know, I had the opportunity to sign a uh, a settlement with the uh, with the tribes that was forty eight years in the making. And it was something that I had actually been... Good clothes. Yeah. <laughs> it was incredible uh, because I'd actually had an opportunity on Capitol Hill. Our former congressman, Ron Packard, had worked on this. Congressman Issa worked on it. And the tribes had worked on it. I mean, it was literally... It's a three, big deal. Three generations of leaders right. worked on this. And so I was honored to, to show up at the last minute. You should have taken all, sign, yeah. take, yeah, right? take all the take credit. All the credit. I, I, yeah, I, I did I this. I could take very little of it, but... Uh, I closed the de- You closed the deal, though. <laughs> right. Hey, right. you're the closer. Yeah, Daryl, why don't you close yeah. it? Okay, John, all these John guys can it. close <laughs> it. <laughs> we got to get him in real estate. Yeah, yeah. that's right. He's yeah. a deal closer. Yeah, Mark and I are both... Uh, obviously, you know, we're both... Um, Licensed brokers, and that's what we do for a living. Yep. We sell houses. And what's really funny is that we've been doing it since about 2004. And when somebody couldn't afford a house uh, in San Diego, we'd yeah. go, you know, let's look in Vista. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And what happened was, like everything, it was a small town. You get in like acreage. Uh, you can go equestrian if you want. You can you can grow crops. You can have your nice house. Right. And um, and it's been it's it's been populated now. It's, it's like ex- that secret that's well. Now out. it's expensive. Well, now now those really, houses if you even can't find afford a house. it. It's, yeah. I don't even think you have that much of an inventory there. No, no, very well, little. As you know, nobody's got inventory right, right now, and right. we have very little. Um, you know, we I'm, I I thank God that we bought when we did. Our home value has doubled in seven right. years, that's and crazy. Uh, I you know I look at Tyler's generation, and I I think man, if I was in the market for a home today with interest rates and the prices of housing. I don't know how we do You'd it. You'd cry. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. why people are going to Texas and all the other states. That's right. And we're actually, they don't, because we talk to the other states and they're like, quit sending yeah. Californians over here because you're messing up our pricing. Well, they, now, right. now we're priced out. Right. And these places. They get, they get, and they get upset. Yeah, they get upset. Like, you know but, what they call it? The C word. California. Right. <laughs> and can, so, can we talk about the affordability crisis for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, we can talk about, this is, yeah. oh, we're going to dive into that. This is something that uh, is, is really one of the top two issues that's on the minds of yeah. Californians right now. And uh, I've got a message that's a little counter to, oh. the, uh, to the popular message. Because right now what the state, uh, our state fathers and, and mothers, right. uh, to be uh, gender uh, politically yeah, correct. people. Yes, our, our state parents yeah, uh, it doesn't sound have the same <coughs> sound. No, but, can't but use they, parents anymore. They want us to build uh, vertical density. Got it. Right. That's what they're forcing on us with right. SB ten and right. nine. And you know, one of the things that I'm always asking people is, did that make housing cheaper in Manhattan? Yeah. 
No. Did it get cheaper in San Francisco or no. Boston? Good, good question. Wherever you have great vertical density, you have ever-increasing housing prices. Good point of view. I like that. Well, it's just, You're right. I, I like to just make observations You're of things right. that are indisputable truth and point them out. And uh, we are being prohibited from building new communities to right. the east of I-15. Right. I read an article. Maybe it was actually a letter to the editor uh, in the in today's Union Tribune. And it talked about exactly this. If we want, you know, we, 40 years ago, the city of Temecula began to be developed. When I moved to California in, um, you know, in 09 permanently and started coming here in 03, Temecula was a booming town, lots right. of new homes. Uh, and today I've got a lot of friends up there. They have new schools up there. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, they're building employment bases up there, hospitals. Right. Wine country. Why are we opposed to building new communities in our state? for young families to move to, to have a great quality of life. Why, why do we think that we can, you know, we have this duty to never build? Yeah, I think it's people got on an airplane. It's the LAX to JFK crowd, right? Right. They went to sleep and never looked out the airplane window right. to see that there's that a lot land. of room for us to a grow. Lot of land. There's a lot of space. Right. Uh, and you know what? We can't all live in La Jolla Shores. Right. There's just not enough room for us all to be right. there, even if that's where we'd all want to live. But we've actually begun to talk about it as a human or a civil right to live in whatever piece of land that we want. And wherever it is that you live, you know, you own your home, and at least for the moment, right. for the moment, we accept the fact that your house is your property, right? Right. But we don't anymore. You know, Hassan Akarada said to me, he said, uh, people should have a, a right to live in any community that they work in. And I said, okay, explain that to me. Uh, I said, so like, uh, like Rancho Santa Fe or La Jolla, uh, people should have a right to live there no matter what their income is. And I said, he said, well, I'm not, you know, very familiar with the neighborhoods here. He had just moved from Los Angeles. And I said, okay, like Palos Verdes Estates. So if I if I work in Palos Verdes Estates, I should have a, an absolute right to own a home or to be able to rent in Palos Verdes Estates. And he said, yes, absolutely. Then now, Burger King would have to pay them $18,000 an hour. <laughs> right. To, uh, well, they, well do, they can have the right if they can afford it. Well, they well, have a right to live there, but it didn't say. Right. More specifically, but Frank, his point was that the government, that you and I, have to subsidize should it. subsidize yeah, it. Yeah, so we, that they, they want us to pay for it. And I said, but the city of Torrance is right next door, and it's much more affordable. It's a more middle and, and working class community. Uh, and he said, no, they should. They have a right to live in Palos Verdes, the same as anybody else. So, um, what they really want to do is they really want to break down. The, and, and for me, I don't live in Rancho Santa Fe. I live in Shadow Ridge in Vista. Right. Okay. I live in a neighborhood. I, I bought my first home in Shadow Ridge for three hundred thousand dollars. Right. And so, you know, <clears> I, <throat> I'm, I, I'm, let me put it right out there. My parents weren't rich. I'm not rich. Right. Uh, my dad died when I was very young. He was sixty when he died. I didn't get a big inheritance. <laughs> and sorry. You know, that. well, it's all right. I, I don't mind. Uh, not, I'm, I mind that he died, but not that I didn't get an inheritance. Right. To me, it's important that people know that uh, I'm a business owner. I've got five employees, and I have worked very hard for everything that I've got. Absolutely. And I've been successful. God has blessed me, and right. you know, people have rewarded me for my hard work. But it's important because some of the issues that we're getting into, if we really want to talk about them, we gotta, 
we got to describe where the motive is coming from mm -hmm. for some of these policies. And the idea that we ought to all be able to have a, a house that's subsidized because we don't like the fact that, you know, Rancho Santa Fe or La Jolla are unaffordable. Well, and San Diego generally is becoming unaffordable because why? Because we have a great economy. We have the world's best weather. Right. It's, it's America's finest city. Right. You know, if we want people to have a quality of life, then we, we can't continue to have this false argument that everybody should be able to live on the same square inch of land. Obviously, we're going to have to build new communities. Our, our parents knew that. Right. Why have we forgotten about the importance of building new communities? Right. And the consequence of refusing to build new communities is that the community that I represent as mayor of Vista, the people in, in Vista do not want great vertical density foist upon them. They like the density. We're, we're 3,000 people per square mile right now. Compare that with Manhattan Island, which is 30,000 people per square mile. <laughs> Vistans are happy at 3,000 people per square, uh, right. per square mile. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> we don't want high-rise buildings. and but, but yet, because of changes to state law, some of my colleagues are supportive, and they're talking about One of my colleagues said, quote, we should be talking about building 25-story buildings in the city of Vista. And I went, whoa. Uh, nobody here wants that. Right. But yet right now they're building a 16-story building and two 20-story buildings in the city of San Marcos. And when I tell people that their eyes get big and they can't believe it, but they're going to believe it when they see them spring up out of the ground along the highway. That's going to be uh, in, you know. What, what kind of building? North City. Uh, residential and commercial. Okay. So the character, they, they want to turn. And, and when I say I love tall buildings, I've lived in tall buildings. I love them. I lived downtown Kansas City. I lived on Capitol Hill. I, I loved, when I was a young person, I loved that urban environment. It was exciting. Right. And then when I got a little older and I wanted to have a family, I moved into a suburban environment because right. that's what I wanted. And so I say, if you want to live downtown, I took my wife. Uh, we don't often go downtown. In fact, I don't think we've gone downtown for years, but I took her down. We saw the Cirque du Soleil show. Oh, the new one? Last night. How it was, was it? It was very good. Yeah, I recommend What's it. it. What do they call that? What was uh, it? Corteo. Corteo. Yeah. Yes. It's crazy. Yeah. Those guys make me nervous. Because <laughs> yeah, you good. always think something's going to happen. They're going to fall. But we, we went to eat at a restaurant. We're watching the construction going on. It was it was at a standstill because it was Sunday night. But we're watching the construction, and they're building new towers downtown. And great. Right. Build, build, yeah. Build away. Build yeah. Build yeah. build all you want downtown. If we want, you know, if you want to solve transportation problems for people, Build vertical density where vertical density already exists. Correct. But why are you making the city of Vista build vertical density when the people there don't want it? Right. We shouldn't be forced into it. Uh, so we got to talk about these things, and I got to stand up for the people that I represent that don't want that. Um, so I'm going to give you a counter on yeah, that, please, because because I hear both sides. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm the current president of the San Diego Association mm -hmm. Realtor, and they're going to say, "Hey, we like that you don't want it, but at the same time." You're going to complain about homelessness and people camping on your streets and having nowhere to go and living in their cars. So what's the solution? If you don't want to go vertical, then how would you solve the, the housing crisis, the home affordability crisis, uh, all the other epidemics that are going on? What would be your what would be your answer? So <clears throat> affordability is kind of like the second major issue of our time. The first major issue of our time is homelessness. homelessness. Yeah, we all know that. Um, I'm sorry, but I don't believe that uh, the affordability crisis is driving the homeless crisis. I, I agree. Um, it, <coughs> if we're going to solve any problem, 
then Identify first, it. first we have to be honest yeah. about the drivers of that problem. Absolutely. We have major regional authorities like Sandag that claim that only 5% of those who are living unsheltered on our streets are addicted to narcotic drugs. Yeah, well, flip that. It's actually 98%. 5% yeah. are not. That's yeah. correct. That's correct. About 95% are addicted. They just read it right. wrong. Right. Well, uh, there, right. I, 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 you would have to ask them what their motives are right. for advancing information that any reasonable person Can see. would know is false. Exactly. But this idea about, you know, if you want to understand, right, you, you want to understand people's motives, look at where the money is, yeah. look at where the power is. They are using the people who are living unsheltered on the streets, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to this. This is complicated, but this is, in my opinion, very true. They're using people that we all see who are living unsheltered, and they're using them to try to bring about major political changes exactly. that have a, a financial benefit to some groups of people. You've got a brother, he's sitting right here. Would you ever let him live on the street? No. As long as you have a place in your home? And same no. for you. Right. Would your children ever live homeless? I let them no. live in the garage. Right? Well, hey, that's better than living in on the one street. section. I have a, and I do have a section because when his wife gets pissed, he's in my garage. Yeah. <laughs> and I understand. No, that. I know. I know your point is. I, right. I understand not everybody has a brother. Right. Uh, and some people really need our help, and that's why I was the one that uh, built the homelessness strategic plan. I ask that our city make it the number one goal of our council. We have about eight major goals. And I ask that we make it the number one goal, and we put it in first position to solve homelessness and the, the causes and symptoms of homelessness in our community. I want to go over that plan with you. Yeah. But first, I'm going to tell you, what do you think about my take? Because Mark and I, uh, although we sell houses, we're, we, we, we love the streets. Like, what's going on with these people? They're freaking human beings, okay? Yeah, They're, that's right. And we're stepping over them. And it's just, it's, to me, it's disgusting. But what I see is it's that— It's sad. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. It's cruel. It's super cruel. So what I see is there was a study done uh, because uh, from the city, and they're saying that uh, we believe all these homeless people are coming in from other states because we're making either. So they did a study. They found out like over 85, I think 87% of the homeless people are from the community of San Diego. So here's That's my right. take. When you start taking drugs, you're, in, you're typically in a house. You're probably 18, 19. Let's just go to standard. The parents find out that you're smoking weed or doing drugs. They start going, hey, uh, can't smoke weed in this house. Mm -hmm. And you can't shoot heroin in this house. There's certain rules to live in this house. The drugs overtake that, gets in the people's mind, and they go, I'd rather have drugs and listen to my parents. So that tough love comes in. If you want to live under my roof, you got to follow the rules. If you don't, there's a door. I, I can't do this anymore. You're stealing my money. Things are missing. Right. This is weird. I love you, son. So they go into their friend's house. After a while in the friend's house, the friend realizes, hey, man, what is going on? You prescription drugs, you get the Vicodin deal, the whatever, fentanyl. They get thrown out. Then they're in somebody's garage. Mm -hmm. Okay, then there's, then there's couch surfing. And then eventually they're on the streets. That's right. So there's not a homeless issue. You've got plenty of houses to go to. And I think to your point, like the brother, you know, there's areas where people will take you in. But you're on drugs. So it's, it's a mental illness crisis stemmed from a drug addiction. So for nearly four years now, uh, under the, the, the components of our homelessness strategic plan, we've hired outreach workers. We have about a dozen civilian outreach workers on our streets, in addition to about a dozen community-oriented policing and problem-solving 
sheriff's deputies who have been outreaching to the homeless for many years in our community. Many years, yeah. But we added a component of 12 civilian outreach workers. And um, we have very carefully documented every single interaction. And that was one of the mandates, again, that I asked staff is we want detailed data. We want to know if what we're doing is working, so go out and collect the information. Got to measure it. So we've had over 5,000 separate conversations with about 350 uh, unique unsheltered people. And so many of these individuals we've had more than 20 separate conversations with, working every time to build rapport and trust. 94% of the time, they refuse to accept the shelter, nutrition services, mental health services, addiction recovery services that are available. Right. You know, one of the problems that we we talk a lot about about shelter bed availability, for most of the last three and a half years, we haven't been able to utilize the beds that we have provided. They've gone empty. And so, of course, if every single unsheltered person showed up at the shelter tomorrow, we could not shelter them all. Right. A lot of times we like to point out that there's more unsheltered people than there is shelter, but we're ignoring the fact that uh, they're not all showing up, and we wish that they were. We wish the problem was that we needed to build accommodations for all these people because they wanted it. The problem is they refused to accept the help. They refused to go to the shelter. And you're absolutely right. They had an unsuccessful experience. Anytime, I don't care if you have your own mansion uh, in a wealthy neighborhood or if you rent a room, there's rules, right? There's rules. You can't go into the middle of the street at three in the morning right. and scream. You can't break into your neighbor's house. You can't right. threaten your neighbors. Right. And these things apply no matter what kind of living environment that you're in. Right. And so what has happened to people who are on narcotic drugs is they've had a, a, a psychotic break, a, you know, a, a drug-induced psychotic mm-hmm. break, right. and, or their, their behaviors become antisocial. Right. And uh, I, I just really illuminate this. I helped some people during the Santa Ana winds about maybe eight months ago. It was 110 degrees in Vista. It was extremely hot. I mean, inhumanly hot. And I approached uh, Lyle and Danita. They were had four shopping baskets full of all their, their possessions. You know them, huh? I, I, know, I'm, I know them personally. Right. Uh, I got to know them. And I, I'll tell you, Lyle was kind of a rough-looking guy, and I, I walked up to him and I shook his hand, and I didn't know, you know, if How he, he's gonna react. I didn't know if he was going to be happy with right. me or not. And, you know, he collapsed and he cried, and he said, you know, I was praying to God that somebody would come and help me today. Wow. And it was a, one of those incredible life-changing experiences, right. you know. And I've had a lot of experiences like that where I've walked up and gotten to know people. and But... I wanted to help them get into the shelter that day, and they really wanted to go because it was so, you know, just inhospitable outside. And um, and I got them, I got them into the shelter, and it was, it was tough, but they got they got thrown out. And hmm. I, I, you know, I I use all these things, and I I give my my business card and my cell phone to everybody I meet, including the people I meet who are living on shelter on the street. And I and I tell the folks that I've helped get off the street into a shelter. I say, you know, I can't go and live in the shelter with you. I can't go through this experience to be rehoused with you. So I want one thing. I want you to give me a phone call from time to time, and I want you to tell me what's going on. And I want to understand through your experience, you know, on one the level of one human being, I want to understand the experience uh, of going to the shelter and trying to work the programs. And so they called me and they said, we've been thrown out of the shelter. They were put into a motel. They got kicked out of the first motel. Right. And then they were put in a second motel. They were kicked out of that one. Yeah. So I went to visit with the owners, the local uh, Vista ownership, and I went to meet with the owner of the hotel, and I said, I just want to understand why you had to throw them out. Because, by the way, right now they're homeless on the sidewalk in front of the motel. And I said, and they they said to me, they said, oh, it's simple. At 3 in the morning, 
every night for the last two nights. They would get in a loud argument. They woke the whole place up and had a big screaming match. And so we just can't have that here. And the, the point is, if you are not in a place, and they, they use this term, and there's a lot of terms and some of them are BS and some of them are very real. The word housing ready is a very real term. It means that you're at a place mentally, psychologically, where you would succeed if we gave you a place to live. And it's great. It's this great thought, you know, in all of our shelter beds in Vista, they're all low barrier, right? Low barrier means you're addicted to heroin. You don't want to quit. Great. No problem. Come on. We want to, we want to get you off the street. Okay. Uh, we're not asking any questions. And as long as your behavior is, doesn't threaten harm, uh, you know, other people, as long as it's not antisocial, then we want you in a bed, not living on the street. <coughs> so we're not going to ask those questions. That's what low barrier is. And, uh, but, you know, I, I called uh, Greg, who runs Interfaith. And I said, Greg, these people have been thrown out and it's, it's miserable outside. Is there any way to get them back in the shelter? And he said, John, he said, if they couldn't succeed in a hotel room of their right. own, There's no way they're he said, they're not going to succeed here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is the hard reality is, if your mental condition, and this is the this is the real foundational core of the homelessness problem, not affordability, um, is drug use and mental illness. Out of every hundred people who are suffering from mental illness and drug addiction, we need to use the force of government while defending and preserving the constitutional civil liberties of every American. We need to get some help for the people who are too sick to know that they're sick. That's a, that's a phrase that I've come up so with. I got, I got two, this down. I got two counters. Yeah. And I, I, I'm a, don't say it, Mark, cause I already know where I think I know where you're going, but I'm going to go somewhere else. Cause I, I think I can read your mind a little bit. The first thing is when you have people on the streets on drugs, mm-hmm. you, you, you have the low bearing many cities right. don't. So in other right. words, here's the problem. They have a love affair that you can't imagine with a drug. Right. They will do anything for that love. Yep. It'd be like whoever's out there who is in love with somebody, you'll travel around the world to see this person. You'll do anything. Yep. Times that by 100. Mm-hmm. So they would rather do drugs than follow rules on most of these housing projects because right. they go, here's your bed, here's your food. It's all paid for. All you got to do is move. But we have one condition. Can't do drugs when you're here. Right. So it always goes back to the drug addiction. Now, the drug addiction, I think, if you want to go back and how we can help them, is what my brother talks about. And that's when, because he's been involved in education, it starts when they're in third grade Absolutely. and no one sees it. You, you got that kid that's kind of like off to the side. Hey, uh, J- Johnny, let's call him. Yeah, Johnny's kind of to himself. And then you see him start performing poorly. There's no counselor who's talking to this kid yeah. going, what's really going on? I, let me gain your trust as a child. What's going on at home? What are you thinking? Let's somehow f- figure out, evaluate him and start at that level. By the time they're 18, 19, you lost them. Well, let's and, just, let's and so be, I think let, it should let, go. Let, let's be perfectly honest. Our yeah. schools are out of control. That's what I'm talking about. And I'm not talking about the politics of who's, who's using what bathroom. Right. No, I'm no forget about that. I'm talking about discipline. Yes. Okay. Uh, Identifying mental illness. The disciplinary problems in our schools, the unwillingness to deal with those students whose uh, behavioral disorders are disruptive, and the unwillingness to deal in a serious way with those uh, those students who are bringing drugs into the school and using them and habituating other students to use them, 
our unwillingness to deal with that. The fact that we have refused to allow the D.A.R.E. program to continue, right, or some right, variant thereof. Right, because it was measurable and all that crap. A police officer came into my school when I was a kid. Me too. And showed me these drugs and yeah. explained the, the impact of You never want to touch them. Right. You know, I had a father, uh, I'll, I'll never uh, stop being grateful that he taught me that drugs uh, were something that would kill me, that right. were would destroy my life. Yeah, the fear of God into you. He, he absolutely, he, you know, he showed me the way with regard to drugs, that they were bad. And, I, and I've never, to this day, I've never used any narcotic drug and I have no desire. Um, but we, you're right, that's where the problem starts. But... Well, here's what I'm going to say. Let me interrupt you for a second yeah. because I like where you're going with this. But I'm going to go somewhere different. Uh, I think you're. I think the school district handles it wrong, and I'm going to tell you why. When somebody comes in because they got into a fight, when somebody comes in because they stole from someone's locker, took some food, bullied, they they go to, directly to an almost a law enforcement. Like you will be expelled. You will be suspended. You will not do this. You you will be, you know, hammered instead of going. Not anymore. There's a switch. Good, because that's no, that's the behavior yet. that you have to we've, identify we've, as a mental illness it's, crisis. The pendulum, so the pendulum has swung okay. at least in the schools that I'm familiar okay, with. Okay, well, schools, I, so, it, if it's not good, okay, because the pendulum has swung so far in the other direction, there You're is called restorative no, justice. There is no more expulsion. There is no more suspension. Oh. There's. Kids are not being given detention. There's no punishment. They don't want to – I mean, you're, you're on the right track with yeah. this restorative justice. <laughs> That's, but, they don't want to punish them in any way that would separate them. And uh, and and the idea of diversionary school for those kids whose behavior is so bad that it's stopping the other kids from learning. Right, disruptive. I, I don't want to get – we could, we could talk a lot right. about the schools, and you're right. That's a big problem, but – the schools are run by an elected school board, and we need better people to step up and run for school board. But That's but I want to talk starts. about where we go uh, with the problem that we've got now, the people that are on the streets. Are we talking about your strategic plan right now? Yeah. yeah well, th- this. this is – this is. Um, I, w- I want to talk a little bit about what the, the real solution to homelessness is. Okay. Because there's an easy-to-understand solution yeah. and incredibly difficult to implement. It's real simple. Let me, let me get this out real quick. we got to help the people who, too, who are too sick to know that they're sick. That means people who are mentally ill and drug addicted. You wouldn't leave your child on the street if you could do anything about it. If they were 17, you would use your power as a parent to compel them Mm -hmm. to get some treatment. And you'd bring them back into your house and you wouldn't give them the freedom to go back to the street if you could do anything about it. But if you're a 24-year-old son, there's nothing you can do because he's an adult. 18. Absolutely. If they're 18, 18, everything changes. So if we could get some help, we we have 3.3 million people in San Diego County and only 300 of them are in the conservator process, the conservatorship process right now. Dr. Luke Bergman is our county conservator. He runs that program. I've had meetings with him about this. We have a single judge in the entire county of 3.3 million people Jeez. who does mental competency hearings. There you go. We have 10,000 people that are mentally ill and addicted on our streets, but only a single courtroom and a single judge. Now, the whole county. We're spending upwards of $80,000 in the state of California. We have about 116,000 people we've reported to the federal government that we believe are unsheltered in our state. And we're spending about $80,000 on housing and homelessness services if we divide that. Right. You each. Know, for each. Right. Now, why don't we take some of that money right. and move it into the courtroom services? Right. You know where a lot of that money goes? That money goes to outreach. I told right. you we're having 20 separate conversations. We're out there begging and soliciting people to accept the help. 
who are too mentally they ill can't make a decision. to make a rational choice. They're decision. yelling at a trash can. That's exactly right. I had a conversation with a woman, absolutely heartbreaking. Her leg was in the shape of a bow. She had been injured. She, I think she was hit by a car while she was living as an addict on the streets. And because of her mental illness, I mean, if she'd come to the hospital, they would have set and fixed her leg right. for free. But she was too mentally ill and, you know, with the addiction. By the way, she's, we're standing in front of a one-story building, and she's screaming that she's the owner of the building. They won't let her in, and she lives on the second floor of the building. It's a one-story building. Right. Okay. Yeah, she's out of her mind. She was out of her mind with drug right. uh, psychosis. Yeah, she needs help. She needs help. And, and this woman— But you can't arrest him. She laid, she laid in a tent, incapacitated for months because of this broken leg, Jeez. and didn't seek help. This is this is the this is the compassionate and moral and just society that we live in. Right. Is that we let a woman with a broken leg right. uh, lay in a in a tent and mm-hmm. have her leg bowed the rest of her life, and it's never fixable now, and we don't help her when she says she she lives on the second floor of a one story building, right. and we do nothing to help her. And the right. the mental health professionals are powerless because the judges don't have the political will. The politicians don't have the political will collectively. And this is this is why I'm here today. This is why I'm serving as mayor. One reason we will never stop the problem. We will never fix the problem or change the problem if we can't first readjust the public's thinking. We need the political will to help people who are too sick to know they're sick. We need to help maybe one, two or three people out of every hundred. Because, you know, if Frank is living on the street and you're living there with him, and we bring Frank before a judge. He's got a right to a unanimous jury verdict, okay? Under the under the United States Constitution, you can't be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That means a jury trial, unanimous jury verdict. Only for one year at a time can we put you into treatment. So we bring you before a judge and a jury. The Constitution says you've got a right to a lawyer to defend yourself. The Lanterman Petrus Short Act in California says you have the right to a psychiatrist, medical doctor to diagnose, and you have the right to a patient's right advocate who will make sure you're properly attired in court, make sure you show up on time for court, make sure that you understand, spend as much time with you as necessary, make sure your family shows up there to support you, to do everything that we can to make sure that your rights are defended. And after all of that, a lawyer to defend you, a unanimous jury, psychiatrist, okay, this is what the the law requires to defend your rights, and we should, okay? We must stand up for, I mean, nobody's a stronger defender of the Constitution than I am. So, but after we have spent the resources to defend your civil liberties and every person on a 12 person jury says, you know what, uh, Frank is not making good choices. He's harming himself. Okay. And we get him into a six month recovery program. The goal of which is to get him back into a place where he's ready to be housing ready. Right. And then we can get him into permanent housing. Right. And I come to you, Mark, and you're living in the encampment that we took Frank out of. And I say, look, Frank was too far along with his, with his illness to understand that he needed this help. Now, we've been here to talk to you four times before and offered you these services. If you don't take them this time, when we come back next time, we're going to arrest you. Yeah. And we're going to bring you before the same judge and a new mm-hmm. jury. And we're going to have a competency hearing. And we're going to consider a conservatorship. Now I have the tool to cause you to use the last capacity of rational choice that you have as somebody who's addicted and maybe suffering mental illness to make a voluntary decision. How many people out of 100 would make the voluntary decision to accept? Right now, remember, I said 94% are declining our assistance. If I could even just help three out of 100 on an involuntary basis and do it while protecting their civil liberties, 
Then when I come to see you, Mark, and you're in the same encampment, I say, I took Frank already. Now, if you don't take the help that we're offering, we might compel you by judging a jury. It might go up. I think the, the, the compliance rate or the acceptance rate of our assistance would dramatically increase. Right? John, can, right. can I, I just want to backtrack. That's the solution. Right. I want to backtrack good. a little bit. That's what I – we all knew that was a solution. Well, it was just implementing it's it. It's part of it. Nobody, I, nobody is speaking that truth. Who's the last person right. you heard say this? To say that you're, we want right. to use the force of government <laughs> no to involuntarily help people who are too sick to know that they're well, sick. Newsom's Nobody's had, got – you're right. Governor Newsom, Newsom had, is New, saying he, it. He, Newsom is saying it. He said right. he has care court. But but I want right. to just address one and thing. And he talks about conservatorship. Yeah. Yeah. I don't agree with everything he does, right. but I do agree with this. Even right. a stop clock's right twice a day. Exactly. Right. Yes. <laughs> so I, I think you're on the right track. But what you're doing is you're treating those people at the end – and there's going to be a slew of more people that keep entering this. So yep. as Frank was saying, when you have a child sitting in class that's suffering from depression, anxiety, then maybe they want to harm themselves and they're not given the care or the treatment, the medical treatment that they need, a lot of them will start to self-medicate because of the accessibility of marijuana and all these drugs. So as they start to self-medicate, their performance in school goes down and then when their performance in schools go down, their grades go down, and it just spirals. So you start you, – you have a pipeline right now of future homeless people, and they're just going to – you're just going to be doing conservatorships till they – for a millennial time. Right. So what, what I'm thinking is all this homeless money that's out there should be reallocated – to the schools to implement two things. One, a comprehensive drug education program, Absolutely. not like DARE, but that's embedded in the curriculum. And you know how there was a big push for diversity mm -hmm. and right. equity. That, that's embedded in the curriculum. Right, right. You know, math is racist. Yeah, the or same this motivation is should be in for this. So I think that we could do this, but it would have to be the same kind of campaign that we did in the 60s. So in the 60s, you'd have 50, 60 percent of the kids smoking. And if you told somebody back in the 60s, we're going to eradicate kids from smoking, they would say, it's not going to happen. All right, good luck. But it took 40 years, and there's this massive decline. Yes, now they're vaping. Okay, that's something that we have to also deal with. So when you look at a ratio of counselors to students, it's 500 to 1. There's just not enough counselors. So un until the school districts have the money and the resources and the will to embed a comprehensive drug education program, I think that you, you're going to be doing conservatorships forever. forever. Well, I, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying right now. I mean 10,901 people died last year of overdose death in the state of California according to the CDC. What's it going to take – for us to decide that our students need to be educated exactly. about the dangers of narcotic drug use. You know, right now I'm in a big debate and I'm one of the few leaders who stepped forward to say that handing out crack pipes to people, there, there's this <laughs> argument that says, well, but they're, but they're spreading hepatitis C. Right. Okay. And I said, all right, well, I, that's not a good thing. We don't right. want people to spread hep C, right? But how many people is that killing in the state of California every year? You know what they said when they handed out right. those crack pipes? They didn't like them. They said, 
<laughs> These crack pipes they, suck. They, <laughs> if you're going to hand out crack pipes. Let me design that oh, for you. I got some. They did. Really? I'm uh, not BSing. Yeah, no, probably you can't make this stuff up. But listen yeah. to this. You know what they're doing now? They're creating a vaccine for right. opioid addicts. For opioids. So if you're taking yeah. fentanyl, what they're saying now is, hey, we can vaccinate you. If, if it gets to the phase one study, nobody knows. So what what kind of a message, like what direction are these people going with Right. instead of actually treating the root cause, which I believe is untreated mental illness at a very young age? I mean, you can – I was an elementary school teacher. I could see the kid that was just – There's always, that, there's always a know. few kids where you just go, and, ooh. And you were lucky, John, because you had a father that talked to you. A, a lot of kids – I mean, there's certain communities where 70% of the, the, the kids are born out of wedlock. There ain't even a dad around. Sure. You don't even know who you're talking so And, they, and, I'm, and I know that. that if my parents had modeled drug use to me, that I certainly— You'd be doing drugs. I probably would be doing drugs. Right. But I think you're 100% on the right track where, hey, we got to—it's like a fire. We got to put this out right, right. now yeah. because this is out of control. Do you hear that? Just some guy just got stabbed in L.A. by a homeless dude just— Randomly, he's just standing there, yeah. and he got stabbed. And so, how many more stabbings? Well, eighty killings. Well, it's and, like eighty-five percent of all violent crimes are homeless against homeless. Mm-hmm. Frank, tell, the news. tell me what happens when they go when they go to the ER. Well, because no people don't even know about this. Well, there's a big. I mean, if you want to know why, you go to you know five hundred dollars a band aid. You know, and all this. Um, you're homeless. You do a a trauma. Not an ER call, but a trauma call, mm-hmm. which means you have to have a stabbing to certain criteria to make it go trauma. Well, getting hit in the back of the head with a hammer is a trauma. Right. Th- those people get taken to the trauma center. The bill to go in a trauma door is like 30 grand just to walk in. Mm-hmm. And then you got the surgeons, you have them, then you have the rehab. And then you cannot no longer release from the hospital unless you have a, a, an alternative where to go. So people yeah. don't know there's, there's places like Scripps, Mercy, that has two floors of people that are just live there. Right. Like they live there. There's nowhere else to put them. So the state mandated once you care for someone, you can no longer release them unless you have a shelter to go to. Mm-hmm. If the shelters are, are loaded, they stay in the hospital as, as yeah. much as they can. So what does that do with the amount of money it takes to have this one guy, a preventable, you know, right. it's preventable. This is an attack. Person should have been in jail. There should be cops dealing with the crime. But they keep allowing it and allowing it and allowing it. So it's costing mm-hmm. everyone millions of dollars just for the medical impact alone. So homeless, like I've always said, affects everything. Absolutely. It affects everyone. It affects commercial. It affects residential. It, it affects TOT. We were talking about subsidized housing and uh, low-income housing. And, and you know, and I've, I've supported a lot of uh, especially senior low-income housing. Inez, my grandmother I mentioned earlier, she lived in HUD housing last decade of her life, and it was a game changer for her. She had $400 a month in Social Security income, and uh, it really gave her a quality of life, and it gave, more important, it gave her a community of people. So I really support right. that. I've supported some other – I support direct subsidy model. Uh, it's a whole other conversation. Uh, we've got a big debate at Vista about inclusionary housing versus direct subsidy. Direct subsidy, everybody pays for. Inclusionary housing is a tax on housing, and it's a tax right. only on lower-income housing – and so it makes the people at the it, lower end. It of the always affects the people that are trying more, to help. Right? Uh, so, and because such a small number of people get it, and because all of the people at the lower end of the spectrum are paying income spectrum are paying more for it, uh, I, I I can't be for it. But um, 
we have 1.8, we have 42,000 homes in the city of Vista, 103,000 people live in 42,000 homes. 774, 1.8% of our housing stock in Vista is government subsidized. And one of the things that I like to ask other policymakers and other opinion leaders is what percentage of our housing stock should be subsidized? Should it be 2%, 5%, 10%? Exactly. I asked one of my colleagues, I said, do you think that it should be, because she wouldn't answer that question. And I said, well, just tell me this. And she's on the left side of the, the, the aisle. Spectrum. Yes. <laughs> and, and I said, do you think that it should be more than half of all of the housing units? And I said, this is not half? a trick. Not, it's not right. a trick question. Right. right. It's not a trick question. Right. Do you think that more than half of all homes should be paid for by the taxpaying public? And her answer was yes. No, her answer was, well, I'm more. not sure. I couldn't say. Wow. And I'm going, how do you mean you couldn't say? I mean, obviously, we can't pay to house, but 50%. but there are some that want to see universal housing. Right. You know, some have called for universal basic income. Right. They go, housing is a human right. You have to look at what the motive is. We talk, I, I started the conversation with saying you have Follow to look at what the, the motive money. is. Right. What are the political motives? I mean, we're paying for, you know, we've, we've provided for your, and, and I don't want to debate whether we should or shouldn't because... You know, I'm not I'm not a hard partisan on any of this. I mean, we should be paying for some some healthcare. We're paying for all healthcare. We should be paying for some education. We're paying for education. Uh, you know, and right. and unfortunately, you know, it's like Paul Harvey said: if you think these things are expensive now, wait until they're free. Yeah. Right. But the <laughs> and and that and that's come to pass. But now the last thing that we haven't really addressed as far as paying for it is your housing bill, and um, if. I think if you want to truly understand why people who live on the streets are being used as pawns, it's because there's a there's a policy objective that says we want as much government funded housing as possible. My problem is I got 350 at most. I got 350 unsheltered people. That's 774 housing units. If the subsidized housing was intended to solve the homeless problem, I've got twice as many, they could each have their own unit, I've got twice as many units as I need to solve the problem. When the when the units become vacant because people move out on their own, I could just move those people in. Problem solved, right? Right. If I built a thousand more units, Frank, it's not gonna solve the problem. Why? Because they have refused to go into a housing model because again, we talked about this earlier, it does not matter what kind of home I give you to live in, there are some rules. Right. Yeah, if you try to light the place on fire right. or you threaten to kill your neighbor, you're not going to be there for very long. <laughs> if you're not housing ready, if you're not stable, if you're not accepting some rehabilitation mental health services, right. you're yeah. not, you're, we can't <clears throat> house you. So we're, we're looking at building uh, board and care. We're looking at building permanent supportive housing. We've got RFPs out. That's the solution. We are doing, because you, you mentioned earlier, 85%, at least 75% of the people who are homeless in our city were housed permanently in our city before they became homeless. Right. And that's a big debate, and a lot of conservatives don't agree, and they think these people are being bussed in. But I have taken the time to meet these individuals, and more important, I've met their parents. And there you go. They, they were housed in our city. Their parents live in our city. I had a heartbreaking conversation with a man who, I was talking to my friend JR who was homeless, and I helped him get into the shelter in Escondido, which is supported financially, paid for by the city of Vista. And there was another gentleman, and he was probably uh, about 75, maybe he was 80. And his son was about my age. 
and he was in a, a grand marquee and his son got out of the passenger side of the car and was trying to get through a, a fence into a, a, a vacant facility. He was looking for a place to sleep for the night. Right. And I flagged him down and I gave him my business card and I said, we have shelter beds available if you're looking for a place to stay tonight. And he said, I'm not home. I said, my wife and I live here in Shadow Ridge. Our son is addicted to fentanyl. He says, I want to tell you, one year ago, our older son got out of jail. The day he got out of jail, he overdosed and died on fentanyl. And he said, today, my younger son is addicted to fentanyl. And he says, when he's addicted to the substance, and we talked about people getting thrown out because they're stealing money. The reality is they get kicked out when they become violent. Right. And mom and dad are in their 70s and 80s. The, the number one category of people who are dying on the streets of, of overdose is 35 to 44. That's the number one category. How old are your parents when you're 44 years old? Uh, seven. Okay. They're at a place in life where they can't cope anymore with right. somebody who's violent. Right. They need some peace in their life and some, some stability. And, right. and so this man, with tears in his eyes, he said, he said, every week or so I come out and I drive around and I hope I can find my son. And uh, we bring him home and we feed him and we wash his clothes and we let him get a shower. And we tell him every time if he was sober and he, you know, could be, uh, you know, it wasn't violent that he could, he could be at home. But when he's on the drugs, he's violent. His mom and I are scared. And he said, we have no choice but to bring him back out to the streets and hope that we can find him again in a week or two. And the pain in that man's eyes, oh, yeah, I'll never forget as long as I live. Right. Uh, because here was so a man helpless. who wished, obviously wished that society would do something to help right. him, help his son. Right. And who's doing something? I mean, where's the help? It's well, not there. John, I, I, I wanted to, a couple of things, Frank, before you interrupt me. Because when Frank asks a question, you ever notice how long it takes for him to ask a question? <laughs> it's really long. Look how long he's taking right now to tell me. But that I'm, I just take like, long. I'm just like, I'm just like letting you know that your no. line, your line is supposed to be. Is there a question here, Mark? Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, so you're a unique politician. I was gonna say that. <laughs> I, I know you were. He's the only guy who has a feet on he's, the street. No, he's a unique politician. Right. And you're motivated to go into public service because you look at it as a public service. But that's not the case with these politicians that are being placed in there by what I call, and some people, I didn't coin the phrase, the homeless industrial complex. Right. The hick. The hick, yeah. Right. So what you'll, you'll have is, and I had this conversation with my wife because she's saying, you know, it's some, some blogger said, it's not fair that, you know, all these people put in so much money in a campaign and they, and they get their person in. I go, well, that's not how it works. How it works is the organizations will find a person and say, let's put our puppet in there. Who is it? I mean, look at Fetterman. Not to say that, I mean, I feel bad for the guy. He's a stroke victim. And he still beat out right. a pediatric right, Harvard-trained right. surgeon like who is old because these guys have so much money that they can influence Election. politics. Right. So I believe that you're the exception. And... And it's really hard for people like you that have to deal with all this Colleagues. big <laughs> money that are putting in people that are not representing the people. Yeah. Like, you know, they always right. talk about special interest, special, but right. they're, representing they're the special actually interest. put in there 
and had given their marching orders and said, you will right. do this. I'm, I'm just going to say it. I, I've said things this morning <laughs> that could be taken and used out of context against me. Um, the idea of uh, treating people on an involuntary basis who are too mentally ill right. to acknowledge, you know, uh, who have anosognosia, right. which means to not know a disease is the medical uh, term to describe somebody who's too sick to know that they're too sick. sick to know that they're sick. Right. right? Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've, I've said a lot of controversial things, um, but uh, there are things I truly believe are right. And there are very few people willing to stand up uh, right. and say things that they might not get reelected right. for. Right. But you know what? Um, again, God's blessed me with a great family and a great business. And um, are you- I, 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 let me let me be clear. I love serving. Being mayor is the but mayor is the best title. It's the best job anybody right. could ever have. Um, yesterday, a woman, I mean, look at me, I'm not a, I'm not a model, but a woman came up to me, wanted her photograph taken with the mayor. You know, that, that feels great. Um, when you go in the grocery know, store, do people recognize you absolutely. and go, do they ever come up to you and go, All the time. Hey, I just want to talk to you about it. my street. Absolutely. I got these potholes. I get about five inquiries every day. Some of them are in person, uh, uh about every manner of, of issue, cut my trees down, uh, <laughs> fix my pothole. Why haven't you solved the homeless problem? Right. You name it. But I absolutely love this job, but, but I'm blessed that if the people don't invite me back, I'm going to be okay. <clears throat> this is not the thing that I need. It's the thing I want to do to serve. We need more people who don't care about being reelected. They care more about solving the problems. Right. I challenged staff this morning on a call I had where I said, and I say this to people frequently, I said, I say to them all the time, I say, what are you doing with your career of public service that will be meaningful to you after you retire? What will you look back on and say, I really had a hand in solving that problem? Mm-hmm. Not just in in, Cheerleading in, the background. in the churn, as my friend Chris Magasin, who runs Solutions for Change, who introduced me to the, comless, uh, the, the concept of the homelessness industrial complex. Mm-hmm. The HIC, he calls it. We had a, a San Diego County Taxpayers Association had a press conference that I was at last week, and we are demanding greater accountability from homelessness service providers. We're providing millions and millions of dollars, but the problem continues to get worse. Throwing money at it is not You know working. how much money those people, the CEOs that make that run these things? Yes. Three, four hundred thousand dollars yeah. a year. That's where the money goes. And it's we, so I told you we spent millions of dollars to solicit people, build rapport with them, to get them to say yes to go to the shelter. And in the last few months, we have... Uh, people have been declined, and they say, bed not available. Now, it's not that they've filled up all 48 of the beds that they have at their facility. It's that they had a staffing shortage. They have a COVID outbreak. Uh, they didn't have a lower bunk, and they're afraid they're going to get sued by somebody that they'd offer a, an upper bunk, but they won't take it because maybe they're disabled. Uh, or maybe it wasn't a bed for a woman. But I said, look, it's unacceptable to tell me after I've spent millions of dollars to outreach to people and to get them to a yes to go to the shelter. When we've done all that, I, I, I literally, I used this analogy. I said, guys, I've got 30 guys that showed up at the construction site. I got two truckloads of lumber and I'm missing one pound of nails. Right. That's a crisis. Right. Okay. The shelter beds actually aren't the greatest cost in this equation. They're actually a very uh, small cost the greatest cost is in the manpower to get people right. to say yes. So when we've expended all that dollars in, in manpower and I don't have the beds, trust me, as a, as a public leader, I am furious. Yes. Right. And in fact, we're going to – I asked the staff to put it on tomorrow night yeah. as an emergency item. Uh, yeah. I've never done that before, 
but I asked him, I said, this is an emergency as far as I'm concerned, and I want to talk about it. I don't know the answer or the solution yet, but we got to at least call it out. To hold them accountable. Well, we'll right. hold them accountable. Okay. And that was the Taxpayers uh, Association uh, press conference last week was demanding greater transparency. I need the specific information about why the beds are not available that we've paid for. Number one, I want my money back. I want your money back. It's your dollars, right? So I want your public dollars back to come to the city coffers. If you can't fulfill a contract and you can't call me and tell me why you're not fulfilling the contract, contract. then you've got to give me the money back, right? right? That's number one. Number two, I need to know why you're not able to fulfill the contract because it's essential public health services. If you can't fulfill it, I need to find somebody else who can. Or if you're missing some essential component, tell me what it is and let me be a part of the solution with you. Maybe together we we can find that solution, right? It's like what they did with that that place you went to and they were giving you problems, remember? Mm -hmm. Together. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like some BS kind of excuse. Right, right. Oh, we can't, we can't get this. What? Yeah, I have have a. um, My daughter's disabled. She has cerebral palsy. She's fourteen. Really, really smart. She she communicates on the iPad. Gets good grades. Goes to regular school. But there are places that you know when you you need help that they turn you down because uh, like one thing is wrong. Like uh. Uh, the water fountain's not working today. Right. It's, it's just like uh, what? It's, it, yeah, no, it's we, insane. They, and oh, we can't take. How's she going to reach it? It's not working. We can't accept her. Right. Wow. But, but let me tell you something, John. I th- first of all, the reason why we're talking to you is because we respect you, and I think that it's coming to a point where that pendulum is turning. You you can only coddle people so much, and you got to say, listen, if you want to give me that the BS about hook them and book them, and we're going to start arresting people and all that, it's like you guys are not living on the street. You guys are not the ones suffering. You guys don't know what it's like to live on the street for one night with nothing and then being starving and trying to get water and, and trying to figure out where you're going to go to the restroom. You guys are just throwing rocks all the time saying that we don't want the government to take control. It's time to take control and say, if you right. if you don't get your shit together, we will hook you and we're going to put you in here. You can call it an arrest. You can be negative. But someone has to actually physically pick you up like a child because you don't know what you're doing. And put you in a in a place where you can get help. And it and if you go through this help in six months, you're gonna come out and go, You saved my life. So who cares and, what you're they, always gonna get the other side. Right? Yeah, they you're always gonna get that. the other side that are giving you crap, but who cares? Rhode Island, fight. New York, right. some of these extremely conservative East Coast uh, right. states have programs where they have uh, court ordered medication right. assisted Follow treatment. What works. Right. They 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 force people to take uh suboxone, naloxone, not naloxone, suboxone, uh, methadone, right. and uh, they have a, a, a wonderful new drug that's injectable, Vivitrol, which is a, a cocktail of uh, suboxone and, and other drugs that are that uh the anti perf- opioid kind of stuff. That's exactly right. right. It stays in your system for thirty days and it's an yeah. anti opioid. Yeah. And it actually can prevent you, if it's in your bloodstream for 30 days, it can prevent you from dying of an overdose if you do have a relapse. Got it. So there's some great drugs out there that and we need to be And there's antipsychotic medication that you can take that you can That's last. Right. They don't have right. to take they the pills to every medicated. day. Right. There's suffering on the street, John. No yeah. one, the, the, I've, I found out that the people who are trying to protect the rights of the homeless, they don't care about the homeless. They're, they care they about the concept to. of the rights and leave me well, alone. Well, they think they care about them. Well, yeah, you're right. They believe they care about them. Let me, let yeah, me they underscore this. Them, but. I have a colleague who sits on our city council. And um, after I told you we've had 5,000 outreach engagements, 5,000 conversations. So it's incredible. Uh, we have this new I, – I, I saw actually uh, Congressman Issa. He asked me, he said, John – 
and this is a few years ago, he says, what has Beverly Hills done to be able to address this problem there? And I looked and they have this ambassador program and they have people. So we brought an ambassador program to Vista. Uh, I borrowed it or stole it, whatever you want to say Doesn't from, matter. from Beverly sure. Hills. Right. It's a good idea. Right. And our downtown business owners love the fact that we have people down there right. whose job it is to keep the streets safe and clean. And then I looked and I said, that's what we have for the downtown. I've got shopping carts abandoned everywhere in the rest of the city. Let's create a thing. We call it the community improvement team. Two guys with F-150 pickup trucks and a lift gate. If they see a couch on the side of the road, they don't. We don't drive past it anymore. Right. We've got a couple of guys whose job it is to make our city beautiful and clean. Right. And so that's the ambassador team for the rest of the city. It's a good idea. And and I told the staff, I said, I want every member of our staff to be empowered. I have in my phone the phone number for our homeless outreach team. That means that I'm capable of connecting any homeless person that I come into contact with with our homeless outreach workers. I said, I want every city employee to be similarly empowered with that telephone number. And I want it to be part of every employee's job description and duties. If they meet somebody that needs help, they can connect them. It's their job to connect them with the right people to get help. We don't walk past somebody in need and say, you know, nothing to see here or somebody else's job to help them. Okay, so we reported that the two gentlemen that are our community improvement team, the community ambassadors, they had had two outreach engagements for homeless persons. Now remember, this is not their primary job function. This is an ancillary job function. They've been empowered to, to you know, to, to take this authority. We had a report for six months. In that period of time, we had about 1,800 engagement conversations with our actual homeless outreach workers, but only two over here. One of my council members says, well, we should eliminate the, the outreach because they only had two engagements. There, And this is one of the people who is one of these you know, would never be for what I, any of the stuff I'm saying. Right. And she didn't do the reading, didn't have the comprehension. We've been doing right. this right. for three plus years, and she didn't have the comprehension of the fact. Yet she still that got we're elected. Thousands of right. conversations. She still got elected. So how'd she get elected? Who put her in there? Somebody put I, her in I, there. I, I'm hopeful. That the, I'm hopeful idea? the voters will put somebody else in I, because the comprehension and and then the philosophy and when. What That's what were, I'm talking about. What you were talking about them not really wanting to help people. The fact that she illuminated the fact that she had, did not have her mind into the detail, did not have a command of the details, right. and Read. then she stands up to advocate against any kind of involuntary treatment. Yeah. If you have not done the reading and you have not done the research and you haven't met the people on the street, then it should be irrelevant. Then how do you stand up yeah. and, and claim that you're a warrior to defend people's rights? Right. You're defending the right of somebody who's mentally ill right. to suffer from that illness? They have no how, background. How is, right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's inhuman. But the hard thing is, when you're on a board, and I've served on m many boards elected and, and, and others, that you still have to work with her or him, right. whoever it is. Right. So you can't berate them in public because no. you're going right. to think, the, and the the, even capital. if you take them off to the side and you're just like, you should read. I mean, just anything. So that's that's a challenge that the that that politicians I don't, face. I don't I don't know if that would uh, would be received well. You should read. Right. <laughs> but exactly. that is definitely the, that's definitely. Am the I, advice. Well, you just said. No, no, like, you're right. That yeah. is. But you that's, can't. So, that's the instruction she needs. But but how do you tell somebody? You know, you should really read. I don't know. <laughs> uh, if you you know. But see, oh. so they so they so it happens all the time. You see this in, on city councils and meetings, right. and you have the mayor that. Even though you're you're trying to get something done, you'll see that 
there's going to be a percentage of your of your board or council that ju- are just not like quite getting it. But then right. you wonder, how did that person get elected? Like, were the voters in her district or his district asleep at the wheel when this is going on? Like, how? Because they don't know, Mark. Because other people don't read it. They don't know. No, what because somebody had money, right, to back them up, and they put that. out these false well, narratives. I never. Right. I never make the mistake of, of thinking that the people in Vista are putting a lot of energy and thought into what I'm doing or what the right. council's doing. It's definitely our job to inform them. It's my job as mayor now to let the, the constituents in that district know uh, what their representative is doing and whether or not we need a better representative. And that's a, a responsibility I take very seriously. And in fact, I've recruited some great candidates uh, to run in the city of Vista. I'm very proud of their people of faith, their business owners. They both happen to be Latino, which I think is important because we're a city that's 50% Latino. Uh, They speak Spanish, but they're really good uh, community-minded people that are very involved. And um, so I'm really excited about these two leaders. Uh, Denise Berrigan is one, and uh, Dan Salas is the other. And uh, recruiting the right people to run for council and helping them with their campaigns and making sure that they get introduced is a critical thing that a mayor does Mm -hmm. that is so important. Uh, Every political leader needs to really go out and seek out the right people to run for office and introduce them to the voters. And, you know, it's it's our job to get the information out there. And then, of course, it, it is the job of every citizen to be engaged, to read, to understand. And people are a lot smarter than we give them credit for sometimes, and they do figure out what's going on. But sometimes it takes a while for them to catch up uh, to where we're at. And, uh, you know, but this is why talking about it and what you're doing to help – and, so, you know, inform the citizens is so important. As as uh, real estate brokers, one of the things we need to do is really uh, no marketing. Okay, so our job is to market homes. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a suggestion. Yeah. That phone number that you have in your phone, the outreach, mm-hmm. that should be on a decal on every city vehicle you have. I agree. Not uh, And police cars, fire, any city vehicle should be. Need a place to sleep right. tonight? Call this number. That's outreach. Right. Just an idea. Mm-hmm. The other one and is, the other one should be right, our. That's, if that's you want such to buy. a good idea that I gave it to the staff about you nine months it? ago. Yeah, all right, see, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling <laughs> with this. Concept. Now they have a problem with the design. Of, you, know, you know what? It's, it's like get I, it done. I, I wish that wasn't the, the dead on truth right there. What you're saying, <laughs> no. but they they really struggle with this concept. I I told them uh, I like to give outrageous examples. I said I want the Vactor truck. Vactor trucks the big vacuum truck with right. the hose on the yeah, front right. that goes in the sewer. I said I want the guy that drives the Vactor truck to be certified to connect people with our homeless outreach team. And I go, oh my God, that's not his job. Certified, whoa. And I said, certified means he's got a business card in his his glove box and he's empowered, he's been told that it's his job to stop if there's somebody he comes into contact with and to give them that business card so that, and to to make a phone call, that he's empowered to do that. And getting the bureaucracy to accept the fact that something as simple as that, And, you know, in this war of, well, that's not my work and that's right. not in my, so job, my description. job description. <clears throat> How can you run any kind of an organization when somebody looks and says, well, that's not my job? Well, that's a, well, that's a bummer about being a, a public employee right. because in the private industry, you're fired. Absolutely. So, so in the public, it's like, 
you know, I got hired for this. I'm getting this wage. Now you're asking me to outreach. I want this much more money to change my doctors. Mm-hmm. The bureaucracy stops everything. Just hand the homeless guy a, a card. Can right. you do, do that? Do the right and that's thing. The, yeah, that's the problem. Just do the right so thing. So the, the problem is that the citizens are worried about the politicians trying to solve something that they created. And there's not there's not a lot of trust for the cops. There's not a lot of trust for the politicians. They don't want to they don't want to see the cops going to arrest people based on you know mental illness. They're going to use that to, to gain power over their civil rights. So so you have to solve that too. So so you know what I mean? It's not Absolutely. it's not as solvable as it seems. But we have to start somewhere. And if everyone's just quiet in the background, nothing's going to get done. If if we if we say things that are true that are incredibly difficult, like right. the things I've said this morning that I know are politically dangerous to say, but it's accurate. But they are accurate. Right. They're truthful. They, 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 if they're if based we speak on the truth about the cause of problems, then and only then can we begin to solve those problems. Correct. And so by changing the, the conversation and, the, and, and creating the political will right. and making a safe space for other leaders to follow on behind me to go, you know, I think Franklin's onto something. And, yeah. uh, and, and I have often praised Gavin Newsom for talking about conservatorship. Right. And yeah, talking about they do something and, good, you got to praise them. Caracord yeah. is, it, yeah. is a, is it's a, a good thing. short of conservatorship, mm-hmm. but it's a good thing. Uh, unfortunately, it's been way too slow in coming. Right. But I support it. And, um, you know, when when folks I don't always agree with are right, you know, uh, I'm going to I'm going to make sure and compliment yeah. them and, and uplift them and and make that space. I think the overwhelming majority of Californians are in favor of doing the right thing on the homeless problem. They want to see it solved. Mm-hmm. In fact, they're angry at government for its inability to solve it. They can't understand why we haven't been able to do something more significant yet. And it's because uh, the emperor has no clothes and absolutely nobody is willing to say the emperor has no clothes. They're all afraid that they're going to be put to death. Exactly. I think that in addition to having that, you know, on all of the city vehicles and all the police cars, like if you see somebody who's homeless or you can put that phone number right under it, it should be. If you need to buy or sell a house, call the Powell Brothers. (laughs) Stick our phone number on there. (laughs) I think that'd be a good thing. Uh, Am I right, Frank? I would vote for that. that. I think it's a really good idea. Put that out for – run that by your council. See what they say. Here's another problem. I know you're – I know you got a busy day, but I'm going to run this by you. Here's the other problem that we see, the bipolarization of Democrats versus Republican. If there's an R by your name and you have a good idea, you're not going to vote for it. Because it's sometimes, a one-party state. Sometimes I, I, I joke Am that I right? if I suggested giving puppies to orphans, that right. they would vote against right. it just they, because of right. it's you know it's yeah. my you know that's right. the problem too. It's it's terrible. We've got to be able to and I and I have colleagues that I have an extremely hard time having a conversation with, and then I have other colleagues on the other side of the aisle that I have great conversations right. with, and we don't always agree. But we always agree about the importance of sitting down and talking yeah, and, and not assuming that this is the you cannot assume that the other side's evil. It's right. what Reagan said. They're not evil. It's just that what they know is wrong. <laughs> and you've got to be willing. And, and I've always said my whole life, it started when I was an academic in, in, in school. I said, I want to be open minded. And if if you bring me an argument and you can convince me I'm wrong, then I'll change my mind. Right. And uh, and and sometimes I have been convinced that I was wrong. I mean, uh, you know, people with some modicum of wisdom are sometimes wrong and they realize it. And that's wisdom is the ability to see that you were wrong. Sadly, you brought something up when you were in school. But our schools have our our higher education has been completely hijacked by far left liberal extremists. If you if you have a conservative view 
and you're going to UCSD or UCLA or University of San Francisco, and they're talking about homelessness, and somebody in that class would write a paper advocating what you thought should happen. No, they'd be given an F. F. They'd be given an F. Right. You're right. Because... And, and that is where students are being taught that and if that, you present an opposing point of view, right. you're going to be uh, singled out, canceled. Right. right. You're going to get an F. You're not going to be popular. Exactly. No one's going to like you. Right. The university experience used to be uh, about open dialogue, open dialogue, right. discussing different points of view. Not anymore. The not, problem is now, now comedians don't even go to college no, campuses. Now, now anymore. it's about conformity with one point right. of view. And, uh, and, and that is a major place where the American system is dying is because well, that's where you're getting this push without back. an honest conversation. Yeah. We can't have a government. We, we just have, uh, we have, an you know, autocratic system. The problem is it's not just it was universities now starting in grade school. Yes, it mm-hmm. is. And now starting with, you know, there, you, you can tell the strategic uh, is to get not just in the city council, but start in the PTA, mm-hmm. get on that little board, join the community. We have to start the power. And it's almost like an internal war. And we all want um, the same thing. The problem is it's like you guys put down your shields. Yeah. It do, we're talking about humans we're talking about we're given like we could just go on and on 100 billion dollars is going to ukraine 100 billion what the hell i don't even know what 100 billion is and we have a we only have how many homeless a, how many homeless people do we actually have a hundred thousand maybe in the, throughout the yeah, state yeah 116,000 yeah. so we got, can't get thousand off the streets are you yeah. kidding me right and you're giving a hundred billion to another country to, right. to, to figure I mean, out what's going it's, on we sent a satellite it's on? not it's not a money problem and right. that is the you're correct it's not that a is money. the most essential thing for everybody to understand right up front is the resources are being spent they're just being spent on the wrong solutions right and that's why what i said last week at the taxpayers association press conference is we need to be willing to do the one thing government hates to do Admit that we were wrong. We need to. We need to. When we, when our solutions we're funding are not working, we need to be willing to stop spending and stop funding those solutions, right. and we need to try something new. And you talked about the people that are making a lot of money mm-hmm. running these organizations. They have a program to defend. They have employees that are implementing these programs. You know, we had one program. We paid $100,000 to help seniors find other seniors that wanted to share rooms so that they could have company, affordability, companionship. We helped one or two people with $100,000. That obviously was a horribly inefficient use of taxpayer dollars. We eliminated the program. Mm. It was a good experiment. I, I still think the idea was a good one, but it was terribly executed. And uh, maybe a different provider would have done a better job. But you know, the provider still came to defend their program and to ask us to continue it. We said no, but it's important that we call out those failures as well as brag about our successes. Well, right. if, you th- if you look at the numbers, there's more homeless people on the streets today than there were five years ago. Right. So the everything that they're working. doing is not working. That's right. Yeah. Everything. It's like none of this crap is working. We didn't have this when we were just like, it was like 10 years ago there wasn't the homeless crisis. There was it's one just... homeless person we were growing up and he was on TV. He was called Hobo Kelly. Remember that guy? <laughs> no. He carried a knap stack and he would like yeah. walk around He was like aimlessly. a cartoon guy. It doesn't matter, but th- th- that's the problem. They want a one-party state, and even if they w- even if they had a one-party state, okay, fine. We do have a one-party let, let, state. Let's just say we're we, we're we're all Democrats. Everyone's the same. What's the solution? Right. You're still blowing it. Like, who cares about your political beliefs? Does a person that has got hit by a car is in a tent, 
doesn't get help. She's out of her mind, and everyone just drives by to go to their city buildings. What well, I say what we seem is to have take... now is we seem to have a divide between woke and not woke. It's not even Republicans right. versus yeah. Democrats. Right, it's woke and not woke. Right. Because I have Democrat colleagues that we really see eye to eye on a lot yeah. of these issues. Because it's reasonable. And they're not on the woke side. And, right. and, and on this, Newsom is not on the woke side. Right. And, um, you know, we ought to be able to build a majority of common sense leaders right. uh, that are not trying to grandstand and they're willing to say things that actually solve the problem. I think I'd get a lot more credit from the voters for solving the problem than just right. saying the things that seem like they sound like they're the right things right. to sound say. Sound bites, the golden right. nuggets. No. And that's why, that's why Mark says you're different because it takes an extreme amount, and I mean a real extreme amount of courage yeah. for somebody to – and I'm going to tell you why good people don't get into politics overall because they see what happens when you get into politics. Absolutely. They'll, they'll take you. They'll take our podcast. They'll cut it. They'll have yep. three words. He right. wants to arrest people. Look at him. Right. And they completely destroy you. But they don't only – it used to be called mudslinging. Now the the family they find out they found out your brother. No, they want to this. destroy your business, your way of your living. Right. They'll go after you. Per, they'll right. they'll put up yeah, Yelp to, things on there yeah, and go. Right. This guy sucks his yeah, business. And, and, and like, got, I don't even robots. know who this person right, is. They got robots doing it too, like with the Chat GPT. Wouldn't that be good if you had that when you're writing all those letters? I was yeah. thinking when you had to yeah. write those letters yeah. as an intern. Can you imagine if you had right. Chat GPT back then? Write me no a letter. No problem. I, I have. A, you I have actually had to write it. I have an employee who is evangelist for Chat GPT, and sometimes he'll he'll write something. And I'll read it. And go, eh, yeah, yeah. I don't think you so. have to edit it's it. Not, it's not quite there yet. No. Right, it's not quite there yet. Yeah. They, they, they have a it, lot of false information, yeah. a lot of really wrong information. Yeah. So if you're going to use Chat GPT, use it as a tool that you must edit, like every sentence, because there that's could right. be a sentence way down here that's pulled from the archives that come. Well, there's another one. There's also it's called Band B A N D. It's Google's Chat. Oh, Google has a chat so you, now. Oh yeah. Well, AI is everything. But see, but Google Chat scrubs all of Google. Chat GPT, I think, goes back, what, four years, five years, four or five years? I don't know. It started collecting data. Oh, maybe I go to Google. Yeah, <laughs> I ju- I, I've I tried it. I just, I just wanted to experiment with it. What do you it, want to do? So, what are you going to do after this gig? Yeah. You know what's what? The plan? Uh, I've got three years as mayor left. Yeah, that's that's what's important to me. Right. And uh, at the end of at the end of my term as mayor, I'll have this is your a, first term, right? This is my first term. So you can get reelected. I, I can. Uh, Are this, there term limits? This, there's no term limits, but um, you know, oh, I re- wow. but I but I believe uh, in the concept of the citizen legislator. Right. I don't want to. I, I will. Career I will, politician. I, I'm finishing at the end of this term as mayor. I'm finishing 14 years in elective office serving the people of Vista. Wow. And that's a lot. And, that is a lot. And my wife reminds me of it every right. day. Pass the baton. My business reminds me every day. Let that it I've, go. I've, you know, well, at some point, the best thing that I can do to serve my community is to bring these other leaders in who have the right philosophy. I can show them the way, share the progress I've made, and set them on the right track. But there's got to be a constant uh, flow of, of citizens who are leaders already in their community who we bring in by creating this permanent class of uh, a bureaucrat and and permanent class of elected official that that this is all they ever want to do. And it's the best job they've ever had. Mayor Franklin, I'm going to tell you something. That Mark and I, uh, we interview several people. We we don't do it on the podcast. Oftentimes we just go and speak to them. I think that's why I was elected as president for the San Diego Association of Realtors is because I had a political edge. It wasn't because I'm a great realtor or doing all this, but we're, we're focused on that. But I'm going to tell you the truth. Your, your name is buzzing right now. Like the, people are talking about you in positive ways. Okay. So whatever you hear negative, 
you're going to have that 5% creating 95% of the bullshit to, to tear you down. But the word on the street right now is, and these are from officials and even your competitors that don't want to say it, that you're kind of on fire. So whatever you're doing, I'm telling you. Don't stop. Don't, and I know Keep you won't. Going. I know you yeah. won't, but I'm just saying you're going loud, the right don't direction. deviate yeah. because we need help. We, yes. the, the citizens who are fortunate enough to have homes, we care about our community. We, we don't. This increase of homelessness is coming to every neighborhood. There's no neighborhood. You want to talk about living in La Jolla? Trust me, there's a lot of homeless in La Jolla. Right. They're pitching their tents everywhere. And the people in La Jolla are just like everyone else. Like, well, you know, it's a human being. I, I can't, like, they, we feel bad for it. It's not yeah. a problem. They're not, like, trying to kick them out of La Jolla. But your name is on fire right now. So whatever you're doing, turn it up. Because you <laughs> got, got some good backup. Right. Okay? You, you. Got, you got backup. And there's some a Democrat, Republican, I don't care. The average citizen who cares about the city, Vista, everywhere, is looking at guys like you and women like you. And they're going like, okay, we there's going to be a fight. There may be even a little war, a skirmish, uh, you know, hmm. speaking on, you know, talking, not a real war. Right. And, and uh, I suggest that you keep on because no one has the answer. But the, I like your strategic look at it. I think I'd look at tweaking a little bit just because I hear different things. Yeah. But exactly what you said is is correct. You got to face the fact that these people cannot make a decision. They, they you cannot. Re- they're like children. You, when you're out of your mind on drug induced psychosis, you've been on the street for long, and you're asking a person. You think they're in the same mental capacity to say, "Hey, we got a place for you to stay." They're going to go screw you. They may think they're on planet Mars right now right. in the flying saucer. Right. You got to take them and bring them and say, yeah. "You got a month to get your shit together. If not, mm-hmm. we're taking you over there." But at the end of that gig. You have a better chance of living and not running out in the freeway trying to commit suicide. Right. People have no idea how many violent suicides are going on right now. Or how many Huge. people die in our encampments. And a, a die in our encampments you don't hear about. About once a month, I get yeah. an email that but, somebody's right. found deceased, they've right. overdosed, or and they died of exposure. And nobody knows. They're just like, oh, well. But but what they're, I, they're forgotten right. human they're lives. Forgotten. And, John's sick. And, and that's the human cost that I'm, Correct. I'm, I'm focused on. What I, what I think, though, is I think it's going to take more than a year for these guys. No doubt. It's going to take a right. couple of years. Yeah. But that's okay because I'd rather spend a couple of years, put the money in a couple of years to have some guy functioning. Yeah, three to five year plan. Six months months is you just – Can't do anything. You can't – you're just touching it. If we're spending $80,000 a year per unsheltered person, if we had to help somebody with multiple uh, opportunities over the course, honestly, of their entire life. Right. Right. If that's what's required, we'll do it. Life. I then, agree. Then isn't that a better outcome? Absolutely. Than, yeah. than better investment. Living and dying on our streets. Yes. Right. And and that's so obvious. Right. But again, people don't want to say that. But you're There's saying some it. people that yeah. we have to provide homes to, medication to, free, need a place to stay right. for their entire life. That's right. But but out of that percentage, how many people are going to be successful? Go back. It's probably going to be in the 90s. I go, but there's also going to be like. Maybe eight, you know, zero to eight percent of the people that we go, we got to keep them here. When I think You're welcome about, to leave, but we're going to have. When I think you. about the father that told me with tears in his eyes that he had to bring his son back out and find a place for him to sleep on the streets, yeah. and I and I asked myself, would his son and would him and his wife be better off as a family uh, with his son in a safe facility where he's got three nutritious meals a day, he gets medical care, he gets psychiatric care, counseling. he's properly medicated, counseling. He's uh, helped clothing, in the shelter, clothing, yeah. you know, gets, a, gets a, a, a bath once a day. Right. Would his son, would him and his wife be better off and better served by that uh, reality than, right. than by his son living on the streets? And you know what? And I'm not going to shy away from it either. 
damn it, our neighborhoods have a right to be safe and clean. Thank our you. grocery stores oh. have a right to operate. Our yes. families are, are, you know, we, we have a right to send our wives to the grocery store oh. and, and them not feel like they're going to be assaulted. You I know, just had that conversation. We, we with have that right too. Right. But this is the most important thing. And the reason I spent so much time talking about, uh, you know, when people, somebody else said it, when people know how much we care, right? They said they don't know how much you know. They, they want to know how much you care. And people want to know. We care about every human being living on our streets as a human being. We care about every human life. When they see, when, when people see that we genuinely have a heart for the homeless, then I believe they will allow us. And when they know we want to improve their circumstance, right. then they will allow us to do right. what Give is necessary. Give us a chance. Right. And right. then when you look at a homeless person, I know I'm, I already know the answer. Do you care if they're black or brown or Asian well, or whatever. The reality is most of them are white. Really? Most of them are young white kids. Um, you know, I, in I, your name, in your, in Vista. In the county. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, there, there are people of all races who are homeless, but there are more, there are more young white people than any other age group. And so you understand the, the narcotic drug problem here. Um, the, the, but it's, it's not a problem of any one race. But, um, right. you know, there, especially when we talk about uh, affordability, um, you know, the Latino community is, is much uh, more open to living, you know, with the, with the family. Mm -hmm. And um, so that, that's a bigger conversation. Right. But, um, well, we'll have you back. But it surprises people when they learn that it's predominantly – now, you know, they're, they're not a majority. They're not more than, than half, but, but they're the largest group. So – so we can go into that because, I mean, I know we're on a time frame right now. We have to have you back because what I really want to do. I appreciate you having it, me. Yeah, the, the base, we, we're going to do, do volumes, okay, because we love him. The first thing is identifying the problem. The, the next one is, is, is going out to the citizens and seeing what is the crime rate in your neighborhood and why should we suffer because you guys can't fix the homeless. If the homeless were over here and we can't do it, fine. We don't, nothing gets homeless. But now they're climbing through our windows. They're going through our garages. They're doing window smashes, and they're not going to jail. They don't go to jail anymore. If you see someone go in your Vons, first of all, they just start taking $900 worth, and you see it all the time. What the hell's going on? Yeah. I, I'm scared that's to gonna be a whole, That's going to be a and whole nother conversation. That's going to be a whole that's nother a, one. That's We're going to talk topic. about crime. That's a great topic. Yeah. So we'll stop right here. Okay. Yeah. Right. So anyway, thank That'll you. That'll be a good one. Good Gentlemen. job, brother. Thank you, I appreciate Frank. it. Yeah, thank you, Mark. John, so much. Thanks for Thanks doing everyone. this. Thanks, very much. Check it out. We're going to follow this guy. He's going to do a lot of good. We have, we have, there's no longer hope. We have to have somebody that puts their foot down and just smashes through the bureaucrats and helps the people on the street. Because they need help more than ever, and we all see it in every neighborhood. So thanks again. Thanks, John. Thank all right. That's a wrap. That's a wrap.